0: Hello and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, um, and I have a very special uh, guest with me today. Um, we are actually celebrating our 100th episode um, with Bimo Gogomu, who um, I saw at South by Southwest uh, last year, or was it early, earlier this year, actually? Yeah. And um, he gave an amazing talk about linguistics and um, bias. Um, so I had to have him on. Uh, Bimu, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you became interested in uh, linguistics.
1: Hey, uh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. I didn't know it was the hundredth episode, so now I feel a little, yeah. little more special.
0: <laughs> yeah, I forgot to tell you. Uh, it's not just episode. Enjoy. <laughs> perfect. Perfect.
1: Um, yeah. No. Awesome. Uh, so, I guess a little bit of background by myself. Uh, background about myself. Um, I was born in Cameroon, West Africa, uh, in the early '90s. Moved to the states when I was real young, um, and was raised in Texas for the most part, Houston, Texas. Um. I've always been a pretty voracious reader, especially when I was younger. Um, we had, I don't know how many people are familiar with or had a similar thing, but we had a program at my elementary school where essentially you could, you could get points for reading books by like mm-hmm. taking quizzes about them. And then you could cash those points in for prizes slash the top three people in each grade at the end of the year, got to go spend the full day at putt putt. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah, that was, that was more than enough incentive for me, uh, somebody who already liked to read. So I read a ton of books when I was younger, probably slacked off a little bit. You know, when I got to high school, I uh, played basketball pretty competitively, and that absorbed a lot of my life. But I think it was the reading early um, that got me interested in, in language in general. Um, and I've always been a pretty strong writer. Um, so when I was in college, I started a news blog uh, with a friend of mine called thehigherlearning.com. And what we were essentially doing was trying to take um, either sort of interesting, noteworthy or just valuable content and uh, make it a little bit more digestible, digestible and accessible to a wider audience. Kind of just saw there are all these awesome things happening, but you know if the average person goes to the BBC or to one of these news websites, there's a lot of things that they assume you already know, um, mm. and so the content just can become a little bit daunting and. The worst thing that you can feel is to feel stupid, like you don't know something. So we were just like, hey, let's not assume that these people know anything. Let's basically set a goal of building like a foundational knowledge in this area and kind of be a bridge to this other content. So you can read our thing, you know, get the gist of it and understand what's going on, but hopefully also have your curiosity peaked enough to go actually then read those other sources now that you're armed with some of the foundational information you need.
0: and was there anything like the sort of like explainers that content that you see is kind of popular today, like Vox has all these explainers or whatever that kind of give you the background or is it something different?
1: Yeah, no, it was a lot of stuff like that. It was okay. a lot of stuff like that. So, I mean, we would have just sort of our everyday content, which was like, here is something cool that happened today or this week that we're covering. Um, but we'd also try to take more complex issues. Like, for example, I, uh, <laughs> I tried to do a simplified uh, history of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict.
0: Oh, is that uh, all? Kind of
1: going back to, yeah, yeah, um, which I soon realized uh, doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as, as I guess most journalists will, will say to try to defend themselves in situations like this, I had a, a pretty equal amount of very angry comments, both from pro-Palestinian <laughs> and pro-Israeli folks telling me that I had left out or oversimplified or misrepresented crucial parts of the story. So sure. I, took, I took that as a win um but yeah we would try to do stuff like that uh you know i try to write editorials kind of examining uh issues that either i felt like were unexamined or you know there's a lot of things in our society that are covered in you know one of two ways because they're politically charged Mm -hmm. so sometimes i would essentially say you know there are other more productive ways to look at this issue um the first thing that comes to mind is I, i did a piece that was just sort of like let's look at the statistics on sort of gun violence and gun control um, and try to take an objective look at that. And, you know, made a few points kind of being like, well, first of all, yes, mass shootings may be going up, but in aggregate gun violence is going down. We just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are more aware of it and it gets covered more often and it's a very visceral thing. Yeah. Um, But then, you know, other statistics like there has been polling done that if you ask specific policy questions about gun control, there's, almost consensus, even if you look at gun owners, questions like, should there be universal background checks for uh, you to buy a gun? Like 90% of gun owners agree to that. Um, Should people who have histories of mental illness and like particularly like violent mental illness have to go through a more involved process? Again, like everybody agrees because if you think about responsible gun owners, like they don't want those other people getting guns because that's what leads to the incidents that then lead for more calls for gun control, so really trying to say like, yeah, there there are more ways to think about some of these key issues. Um, but yeah, I did that for, you know, two to three years. I mean, the site is still live. Uh, there's a lot of old content that just bounces around in the ether and gets shared in different places. But um, I haven't created any new content for that for a while. Um, but it was the main thing that got me my job at IBM, where I was hired to essentially be a sort of like a storyteller and content designer um, initially. Um, done a lot of different things since then. but uh, But yeah, I guess. That's sort, of a, that's sort of a light um, backstory on my interest in yeah, writing and language and all that stuff.
0: Cool. Um, yeah, it's just even more reinforcement that it's so good to start reading early. Um, I, I had a similar, similar background. Um, so tell me a little bit about some of the common biases that you see uh, when you study linguistics.
1: It's hmm. a good question. I mean, I, I would say I haven't like taken a ton of time to sort of sit there and kind of try to map out or list out the specific biases. I would basically just say that I think language is one of the things that probably biases our thinking the most in ways that are probably the hardest to actually get at, mm. right? Because it's, I don't know, it's kind of like water. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to completely ruin that story or whatever, or the allegory, but there's the whole allegory about like, what is, what, is a, uh, what is water to a fish? It's just, yeah. it's just the medium. Um, we don't know how to communicate to each other, let alone our own thoughts to ourselves in any way other than the language that we have, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that I tried to get at in my talk was, was the sense that even when you're having conversations with yourself, until you try to form your feelings into language, they're just that. They're just these feelings. And you know, no matter how colorful or wide or expansive uh, your language, or if you're bilingual or multilingual your many languages may be, there are just you know, it, it's still an act of translation, like something is always going to get lost when you go from a feeling into uh, words. Yeah, so I think yeah, so I think. It's, it's hard for us to zoom out, if you will, far enough to, to get a sense of how the language is actually affecting the conversations, the, the scenarios, um, and all of that stuff. I mean, we'll get to this later, but I think the, one of the most salient and obvious examples is, uh, I think the way that Trump approaches a lot of his PR stuff, which is, you know, let me pick a word or phrase that I think essentially gives me a good strategic positioning. And then I'm just going to hammer on that. Like, I think, you know, it was fake news. Now it's quid pro quo, which is like, mm. again, a meaningless phrase that actually doesn't matter at the end of the day. But he's framed the entire conversation about the fact that there was no explicit quid pro quo. And since people just keep saying that shit, everybody's like, oh, this must be the way to validate whether or not something bad happens. <laughs> and it's like, no, you've completely missed the point. Um, but yeah, I think it's things like that.
0: Yeah. And I think, and I'm I'm happy to jump to that now, but um, <laughs> I think that that's, uh, I, I think one of the, the the key biases you're kind of um, getting into there is called the framing effect. And I've, I've talked about it on the show before and I've like gone on record as thinking it's the most dangerous bias in the world, but because um, it can literally start wars. But, um, but I, but I think that, that, that is absolutely true. Like in your talk, you kind of get into this about like how he's used the wall, right. As a way to frame the immigration mm-hmm. discussion. Talk a little more about that.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, I guess. I don't know. I think there was a few things that I touched on. One is just, I think one of the reasons that he is such a good sort of like PR marketing person is that whether he realized, I don't know that I'll give him credit for having like, a, like an enlightened thought or whether he just got lucky, but um, politics. So if you think about politics, there's the side of politics, which is the policy and all the policy wonkery. Mm-hmm. And then there is, The average person who engages in politics at the most shallow of shallow levels Mm -hmm. and I think for a long time there was this sort of uh, I don't know I guess unwritten rule that to a certain extent as a politician You can play a little bit on the side of emotion and all of that But you kind of have to be rooted in some sort of policy positions Mm -hmm. And I think what Trump realized is quite frankly like a lot of the electorate Especially a lot of his base could give a shit about policy positions. It's like as soon as you get more than one or two layers deep on why these things are happening or what are the relationships that are in place or what are the you know, different precedents, like people's eyes glaze over and they're like, I don't actually care to engage with politics on this level. Um, so I think what he's been really good at doing is just taking any political issue and saying, screw policy one way or another. I'm not even gonna make it look like I'm writing really strict policy to prevent immigration. I'm just gonna pick a powerful symbol that uh, is emotionally charged um, and that is like very quick and easy to understand. So I think the wall was that, you know, forget that most people are coming like most of the drugs and stuff are coming through underground tunnels and all sorts of other stuff. Forget that the wall he's built, you know, there's videos now of people scaling it in 15 seconds. Again, if he can say, (laughs) hey, there's a wall. Walls keep people out. A lot of people nod and go, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I'm building the wall. And here's one segment of wall that I've built. It's yeah, he he uh, addressed the problem that I thought was a problem in a way that I could understand, and he executed on it. Like, how could I how could I not support him? Um,
0: yeah, and there's a certain. I mean, it's it's funny. I just recently watched a really cool um, video essay about how uh star wars trailers uh basically hijack nostalgia or weaponized nostalgia mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's really it's, it's not even coming down on them it's actually talking about how artful they are but um but it, but, it, but to me it's a similar kind of thing like a lot of those kinds of trailers like play on iconography like if you think about like a um i don't know like the superman returns trailer right like one of the opening images is just a mailbox that says kent on it right and like that mm-hmm. one little thing inside of that symbol is so much right and that's all you need to sort of get us in a particular state and i feel like that is something trump does very well really anyone who's good at propaganda does really well is understand how to use symbols how to combine a lot into a little and still yet say nothing right and say it to a particular base right and understand what those key icons are and just really it becomes icon soup like and, and it makes sense like people like rag on Trump for having rallies where he's sort of going off and just when you actually try to analyze what he's saying, it's just word soup, but it doesn't need to be anything else. That's not, it's not there to be analyzed. It's there to get people excited. And it does.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, you know, when you talked about the Clark Kent example, I think it it takes me back to the the semantic Atlas, which um, is still one of the craziest things that I've come across. Um, and I guess for your listeners, um, there was a part of my talk at South by where I talked about this thing called the the semantic atlas and I'll try to summarize it, uh, to to the best of my abilities. But so probably about five years ago now, there was a couple of neuroscientists at Berkeley. Um, and they decided that they wanted to try to like map out word associations, basically like visually in the brain. So they hooked a bunch of people up to these, uh, fMRI machines, which you can just essentially think of as like you know, x-rays that can look at your brain as it's doing stuff and track all the activity. Um, and then they had these people listen to hours of narrative stories. And what they did was essentially try to map the different, you know, words in the story to the parts of the brain that were firing off when those words were heard. And then in aggregate, doing this for hours and hours with, you know, a couple hundred uh, subjects, they were able to kind of get a rough sense of, you know, okay, the word green uh, activates these regions of this person's brain. The word bright activates these regions of this person's brain. Um, and what was really interesting, and I think what stuck with me, was this idea that words don't exist in any one place. They actually are distributed in different places. And they are I'm pretty sure they're doing follow-up research on this. This isn't confirmed, but their theory, which to me makes a lot of sense, was essentially that words exist in all of the different places that they have associations Mm. um so if you think about the word top top can mean a lot of different things depending on the concept if you're talking about kids playing a game during hanukkah you're probably thinking of a top as a spinning thing like a dreidel Um, if you're in a clothing store you're probably thinking of a top as a shirt Um, if you're doing construction you're probably thinking of top as you know just the physical top of the thing you're working on Um, so all of those meanings are very, very different. Um, so it's actually not crazy at all that you would have that one word existing in different places associated with, you know, clothing and appearance in one Mm -hmm. case or with space and construction in another place or with toys and, and, you know, holidays in another place. Um, and I think that is sort of, you know, whether it's the Clark Kent example or, or whether it's some of the stuff that, that Trump does with the symbology, the more that certain terms or ideas are, are hammered in there. Um, and especially when you know, uh, like can pretty confidently say that this word is going to activate these sorts of emotional reactions and be tied to these other sorts of things. There was another example in here. Actually, I think I, I edited it ultimately, but using the term aliens to describe people who are like immigrants from outside mm. of the country. I've always been like, what the hell? Aliens, aliens? <laughs> really? illegal aliens? Like, what? what is a worse way to describe another human being who's coming to our country? Like, probably for a better life and to escape persecution. Yeah. Um, let's first off call a person illegal, which in and of itself is ridiculous. Like, a person cannot be illegal. Maybe the crossing into the country is illegal, yeah. um, but an illegal alien, right? Um, yeah, good, good luck selling your constituents on allowing those people to come in.
0: Yeah, there's also a lot about um, the use of the term criminal um, mm-hmm. as a going from an act to an identity, right? Like that mm-hmm. use of that term does, has, has a lot of destructive power that way. So, yeah, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, an example we were chatting about earlier. Uh, it's another kind of example how language can influence behavior in ways that you would not expect. So we were chatting a little bit about how different languages handle talking about the future. Um mm-hmm. so you know what I'm talking about. So let's let's get a little bit into oh, my that. Favorite like, example. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, go.
1: Um so basically when I was preparing to do this talk for South by, you know, I spent a couple of weeks just diving down any ing- uh, interesting linguistic rabbit hole I could find. Um and I guess for a little bit of context, one of the things that kind of kicked off the idea for my talk was me wanting to get this tattoo um and i think we'll come back to the input control fallacy but i asked my dad to translate uh into uh our native dialect from cameroon um the idea of like mind the input or like be mindful of what you allow in uh-huh. um be thoughtful right i was like how would you say that um and he basically said well like the words for listen and think are one and the same um which blew my mind he didn't understand why I thought that was so crazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that just, you know, like catapulted me into all of these like Google searches about like, okay, what other like words and phrases exist in some languages, but not others. And just all of these crazy like little linguistic details I learned about, but probably the one that was the most insane to me um, that unfortunately got scrubbed from my talk because it took a long time to, to describe it. And I only had 15 minutes, um, but was the impact of, future tense on actual behavior Mm. so first off english has what's known as a strong future tense which basically just means if you're telling somebody about your plans you know in the future you use words like will like i will go to the gym tomorrow um but not every language has a direct linkage to the future like that Mm -hmm. um so if you look at mandarin for example uh, mandarin has what's known as a weak future tense so saying that same thing in Mandarin, you'd simply say, I go to the gym, and you might say tomorrow to indicate when, but mm. you're still just saying, I go to the gym, right? There's, there's no I will, which, you know, then brings this idea of I won't as a binary. It's just, mm. I'm describing something that has basically already taken place, just that it's happening in the future versus the current versus right. I'm describing something I might or might not do in the future. Right. Um seems like a subtle, you know. Well, yeah, okay, whatever. Um but a few years back there was this guy, he was a Chinese-American behavioral economist and he was sort of curious like, hey, I wonder if this different framing cuz he had sort of been uh, raised bilingual Chinese and English um affects people's behaviors. So what he found, uh, and he did not only Mandarin, but there's like a, a whole sort of like family of languages that have weak future tenses. So he, he took Mandarin and, and English as sort of the main ones, but there was probably another language that he tested as well. And he found that um, speakers of languages with fu- weak future tenses, so like Mandarin, where you're just sort of describing a reality, um, were 30% more likely to save money regularly, mm. 24% more likely to avoid smoking, and 29% more likely to exercise regularly as compared to speakers of languages with strong future senses. Um, wow. And that's with him correcting for as many variables as possible, right? And, you know, my first thought, I studied sociology, so I'm always looking for flaws in methodology, wow. um, was the, like, okay, bullshit, like that's just reflecting cultural differences that happen to also be correlated with languages. Um, this guy had the same thought. Um, so he actually also compared speakers of different languages who were born and raised within the same country and controlled for factors like age and number of children mm. and still found the same thing. Wow. So depending on what language you learned first, whether you were in China or America, these differences held true. Um, so it was just sort of all about what is your foundational reality? That first language, um, mm. is it a weak or is it a strong future tense? And that can pretty, uh, yeah, pr- in pretty significant ways affect, essentially, your like, healthy fu- future focused behaviors. That it one was, just blew me out of the water.
0: Yeah. And, and is it just that putting it in terms of, I go to the store or I, or I exercise or I like that sort of present tense and then modifying it with time, just that difference makes it seem that much more real to you and lets you identify that much better with your future self?
1: I, you know, I, I, I don't know, right? There could be a hundred reasons for it. But what I take from it more than anything, and I kind of touched on it a, a second ago, but is, is the idea that with a strong future tense, we introduce a word that, has, that, that basically has a, an opposite. There's will mm-hmm. and there's won't. When we hear the word will whether or not, again, sort of like semantic atlas, whether or not we think won't in our head, will activates won't because won't and will are always inextricably tied with one another. Mm. So I, for me, the way I interpret it is if I say I will go to the gym tomorrow, I'm leaving myself basically the option of also being like, but maybe I won't, Um, (laughs) you know? Whereas if I just say like, I, you know, And and at this point, it's less about how you say it, but if, if you try to imagine, uh, living in a world in which you never had that binary, if you're Mm. describing something that is, is going, that is is happening now or going to happen in the future, there's never been a world in which you leave open this possibility of not doing the thing. There may be times where you end up not doing the thing, of course, but just that idea of, of stating, you know, stating a future intent. Mm-hmm. doesn't come with this sort of built-in out. Um, yeah. So that's, what, that, that's my theory. Um, I don't even know how you get about testing that and you know, trying to, trying to uh, disambiguate all of the different things at play there. Um, but either way, I think that that example is one of the most powerful examples that I've found of, of just the impact of language on behavior
0: yeah and in this way they don't necessarily see it's funny because it reminds me of almost like uh, a doctor Manhattan style of like existing in all times at once right mm-hmm. and not exactly, making these yeah. distinctions um, mm-hmm. I wonder like to give you an alternative theory, like I wonder how much reactance plays a role in this as well so there's this um, this bias called reactance, which is basically the you can't tell me what to do bias, and an easy example mm-hmm. is if. I write uh, on one wall or if I have a sign on one wall that says do not write on this wall or please do not write on this wall and then there's another wall and there's a sign that says under no circumstances should you write on this wall that's the one that's gonna get all the graffiti because we just react uh, negatively to being told what to do and the funny thing about it is it even works if we're the ones doing the telling so there's an experiment where you have like people write down 20 times I will exercise today and then you have another group of people write down 20 times will I exercise today and the people who write down, will I exercise today are more likely to exercise. And the, mm-hmm. the, the theory is that the people who write, I will exercise today are starting to feel boxed in and they react against mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and yep. So even that the yep. use of that term will as, as how we define future tense can be like working against us in this subtle way.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I 100%, 100% agree with that. Um, the framing of, of statement versus question too just completely changes everything. Yeah, there's a, I think that also brings in some of the cultural issue, uh cultural sort of details, because I do mm. think sort of American or Western societies tend to have more of a sort of like anti- anti-authoritarian, yeah. sort of like rebellious streak where it's like, no, you, nobody can tell me what to do, including myself. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating. Yeah, because when it becomes a, a question, it's almost like a personal challenge versus an order that you're giving your, you know, like creating the parental version of yourself to tell the other version of yourself that it needs to do something. It's like, yeah, no, screw that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's probably also just a personality thing too. I know some people are more like rebellious in their personality than others. Um, Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing to me, just to stay on the wealth thing for for, for one more second, there was an experiment um, where they would show people uh, like a digital um, aged version of themselves and mm-hmm. like, then ask them to, you know, I don't know, make financial decisions or something like that. But basically, some people were primed with images of themselves as older, and some people were not. And the ones who weren't were like less likely to engage in some of those same like future positive yep. behaviors, right? Versus the people mm-hmm. who saw these older images of themselves, you know, save more money or smoked less or whatever that you know future positive behavior was. And it just sort of leads me back to that explanation of like is the language somehow making it easier for them to relate to their future selves or think about their future selves? Hmm. Um, and is that like, again, kind of priming them to behave in a way that's friendlier to their future selves?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's super fascinating. This is maybe not even related to linguistics, but you just made me think of a conversation I had um, with a friend of mine who uh, he runs a, a augmented reality startup. Um, and we just had this insane conversation about like, behavioral therapy based on vr Mm. (laughs) and i was just thinking in my head like if you had to put on a vr headset once a day that like basically showed you you know five or ten years in the future and either like way fatter or with a ton of wrinkles (laughs) or just like with all of the worst results of not being healthy like that could be a really interesting way to galvanize you to action um and probably also give you post-traumatic stress but, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> or is it pre-traumatic stress sp- so, <laughs> oh wow meta very meta i think well right. no i mean i mean if you think about it it's, it's it's the 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 holidays as we're recording this but if you think about it that's the entire premise of a christmas carol right like mm-hmm. i'm gonna show you your future self and freak you out so much that you behave differently
1: exactly exactly yeah i mean i think the future in general is one of the like it's just, it's so unreal to us um, in always. I think it's one of the biggest challenges with things like global warming, because mm. even if everybody groks it, like, so I would say there's obviously this sort of obvious challenge of people pretending to not believe in it. Because I will still say that I, I call bullshit that any significant portion of people who are saying they deny it actually don't believe it's happening. Right. Um, that's just my, my two cents. But I think even for the people who do believe it and have studied the science and are convinced by the science, I think there's still a level of inaction, which is driven by it being very hard for us to actually like, visualize what that will mean.
0: Like, mm-hmm.
1: We hear about it. We watch documentaries. They talk about the storms are going to get worse, blah, blah, blah. But then you get back into your day-to-day life and it's like, yeah, but things don't seem so bad. And in so much as there are you know, slightly more powerful storms or whatever, like the frog is just being slowly boiled. Um, yeah, so I think that's I think that's a challenge with anything in the future Um, I also think that's why storytelling can be really powerful. Um, so I think, you know stories like 1984 brave new world um despite how many uh Elements of those books are becoming frighteningly uh, familiar. Um, I think help paint a picture that you know Just the fact that people are able to reference those things and say hey guys like this is clearly not good somebody else wrote about these things potentially happening and that was clearly an insane world. Like that alone, I think helps, uh, I don't know, helps deal with some of those things, Wish there was more good. Uh, yeah. Like science fiction about just emerging technologies, like things like CRISPR or AI or VR. Um, I think black mirror is a really good example, but maybe not, not quite so frightening maybe with some like, here's also good things that might happen.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that's, I think that's an interesting, uh, I was going to say like I feel, I feel like stories give us a language for some of these things right like when we say mm-hmm. I, like it's the symbols again like when we say 1984 i just said a year but in saying that year i've sort of summoned right this whole philosophy and vision of the future mm-hmm. right one of my yeah. favorite examples is um there was an article about how uh the uh, the show uh, Jessica Jones um helped mm. create a way to talk about why it is so why it is such a microaggression to ask a woman to smile more right mm. um and like for those who have seen the show, like you can very quickly under it, it, it gives you this language and this context for understanding oh yeah that 's like really creepy and aggressive and mean and just kind of gross right but once you've seen the story you have the story to work with it's way easier than trying to like unpack like you know 200 years of feminist Mm -hmm. history right it's like here just watch this and we can begin the conversation you know
1: right exactly exactly yeah almost like memes in a way
0: yeah that's
1: that's why there's a whole study around memes because you can communicate an insane amount of information in like half a second now as long as somebody else has also seen it
0: yeah and i wonder if we're going to get some of the same linguistic biases around memes that we do around language, right? Like the, mm. They're going to prime us in similar ways. Yeah, I, I would love to see more study of that. Um, oh, it's out there. It's out there if you ever want to <laughs> go down the rabbit hole. It was like, oh.
1: I can't remember what university. There's some university that has literally a whole program that's around the study of memes.
0: Uh, okay, you're going you're gonna to have to give me those links later. Um, okay. So I know you'd, you'd mentioned something earlier called the uh, in, input control fallacy. I want to hear a little more about mm. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I guess to go back to the of the the origin story of the South by talk I had, I had just sort of started realizing more and more. And I think one day it, it it crystallized in terms of me actually being able to describe the thoughts to myself in words um, to get meta. But I just realized that um, all of us do a lot of passive consumption of let's just say content. Um, Mm -hmm. So whether it's stuff we read stuff, we listen to or stuff we watch, we do a lot of that like kind of half-checked out um, because many times it's our way of sort of relaxing. Like at the end of the day, you put a show on or you know, even if you're like somebody who likes to learn like me, like putting on a podcast while driving home, you're still sort of passively listening to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll say passively as defined by we're not typically sort of asking ourselves like, hey, why am I watching this thing or reading this thing in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the answer is like g- good marketing or something that caught our attention, right? It's like Reddit, scrolling through it, interesting headline, okay. Um, and I'll scroll through Reddit for 30 minutes and just consume a bunch of stuff that I actually don't care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that was one of the things. <laughs> that's probably one of the things that, that sprung it was I was spending an inordinate amount of time on Reddit. And I think one day I was just sort of like, okay, I just spent 90 minutes scrolling through this thing. There was probably six or seven really interesting things that I learned or articles that I read, but I actually only remember one of them now because I spent so much time consuming other bullshit. And I kind of was just like, why am I doing this? And I think the next question was like, what all shit have I just allowed into my brain without even really realizing it that's now doing all sorts of crazy things? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the best way to describe the the input control fallacy is is I think we all have this assumption that when we're watching something or listening to something or reading something like we have some level of control over how it affects us mm-hmm. um and, and maybe the the best way to describe it is like. Whatever mu- music you listened to when you were a teenager, that was like your rebellious music that your parents didn't understand. And they were like, hey, you shouldn't listen to that. Like, it's going to affect you. And all of us said, no, it's not, mom. Like, I'm a good <laughs> student. Just because I listen to like gangster rap doesn't mean I'm going to go join a gang and kill people, which is true. However, it doesn't mean that some of the ideas and feelings and attitudes in that music or whatever content aren't still lodging themselves in your brain and impacting you in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of realized no matter how smart you are, like you don't actually have any control over the stuff once you've allowed it to get into your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the best defense that you have is to just try to be sort of thoughtful and, and introspective and really just to ask yourself those questions all the time of sort of like, why am I consuming this you know, piece of content? And even if the answer is for entertainment, I think that's a really healthy thing to do to clearly define to yourself. Oh, right now I'm just consuming for the sake of entertainment and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, because then you'll, then your next question will be like, well, how much entertainment is reasonable? It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. 30 minutes to an hour maybe. And then cool. I've, I've fulfilled this purpose. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's other ways of interrogating that frame as well, which is also like, Especially if you're watching or consuming anything that's related to current events or where there's politics involved like Thinking about who is behind the content and like sort of what are their biases or, or what are the things that they? Uh, you know have a, a sort of a vested interest in trying to communicate through the way that they're framing the thing that that you're consuming um, You know, there's the obvious which is like, you know, Fox News versus MSNBC um but even a lot of entertainment content, right, is promoting different sorts of tropes. Uh, you think about why there's these big movements behind, like, you know, representation in Hollywood. It's because, if the, you know, if the desired damsel is always a white woman, that shapes all of our, you know, views of beauty. Um, so there are a lot of little things like that. and I think the more that we ask ourselves those questions, um, the better served we are. And the more that I think we sort of kind of help... Uh, yeah, put on put on some armor against um, some of the ways that some of the second can manipulate our brains without us even realizing it.
0: So how has this um, realization or, or interrogation kind of, has it changed your behavior, your consumption behavior?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that I, you know, suddenly stopped doing all of those other things. I think that I just I don't do them quite so passively anymore. Um, I think a lot of this stuff is is muscle memory. It's not like Mm -hmm. a a one-time realization. It's something that you have to work on. So once I had the realization, I just tried to ask myself those questions and sort of pull myself out of the trance as often as possible. And now I find if I'm watching something, you know, uh, I'll give you a great concrete example. There was a while where like late at night, like I'm working, whatever, just sort of like kicking back, relaxing, like, where I would watch the same episode of SportsCenter two times, two and a half times in a row, same highlights, same everything. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, you're kind of doing other things. You're looking at your phone, but yeah. And (laughs) I think I almost never do that anymore because Mm -hmm. I very quickly, I'm like, Oh, I've watched this already. Why am I watching this? this Like knowing the highlights of the day and I'm done. So at the very least, like I'll switch to something else like Trevor Noah or, you know, whatever the case may be. and, and, yeah, I think I'm just, I'm I'm now much more likely to sort of stop in the moment and ask myself the question, why am I consuming this? Which actually more often than not leads to me basically stopping and being like, mm-hmm. oh, there's not a good reason why I'm consuming this right now. Like I've had my 30 minutes of relaxation after work or, you know, I'm not actually interested in the show or movie or I've seen it five times already. So like, let me just put it off and figure out like, even if I still want to entertain myself, let me figure out what I actually want to consume, whether it's a book that I've been wanting to read, or whether mm. it's going on a bike ride or something. So, um, yeah, I think what I said in my talk is it's like it's not necessarily about consuming less; it's just about consuming less passively.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's it's funny. Like I think of a perfect example, I'm like uh, my kid uh, who's eleven. Will usually like kind of multitask and like watch stuff and play his computer. And I can tell when he's really completely dropped focus and is really just playing his computer and using the TV as background noise when he'll watch like um, Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is on Hulu. And what'll happen is if he's already like watched that season, what Hulu will do is it will jump to the end of the next episode. Because that's kind of where he left, where Hulu thinks he left off. Yeah, and it'll uh, keep completely jumping, completely. and he'll skip through like four or five endings of episodes before he realizes <laughs> he's not actually watching episodes of Brooklyn Nine Nine anymore. Like, yep, that's a perfect uh, example. Like it's yeah, he's he clearly this is not your focus right now. Um, exactly. I, I think about that a lot. Actually, it's it's funny. I've kind of been doing a version of kind of what you're talking about um, for a little while now. Like I've thought a lot about in the past ten years or so. I thought a lot about how even my own story ideas tend to be very white male centered because that's the kind of movies I grew up watching. And Mm -hmm. like, what can I do to diversify my storytelling? And part of that has also been me looking at, well, what kind of stories am I looking at? And so I literally have a Trello board where I have like a, just a rotation of things I look at. And, you know, over time, I've included things like, okay, this next thing I want to watch, I don't care what it is, but I want to, I want it to be written by someone who's LGBTQ or I want this to be directed by woman of color. Right, and it's funny too. Like, like that's, that's the, like awesome, the only man. restriction because I can still find stuff that I, you know, in right. the genres that I love. But I yeah. know I'm getting a distinct perspective, right? That I am probably not getting, or I'm getting a different set of biases, right? than I'm usually getting mm-hmm. from you know the white male power elite. So I find yeah. it's I don't know. I find it's a helpful way. Even just I think I think it's not just a healthy approach in terms of you know uh, avoiding passively letting stuff in and letting it do what it wants i think it's just also good for just finding better entertainment like yeah, <laughs> like i think absolutely you, you just get a, a more diverse you know palette that way
1: mm-hmm. no i love that i love that and I, I mean especially with modern technology basically doing like a really good job of clearly defining and keeping us in our own echo echo chambers right like netflix and hulu and those folks are not actually good at helping us find more stuff very similar to the other stuff that we've already consumed in the past so i love that actually yeah i might have to i might have to steal that from you
0: yeah I'll, I'll totally send you the trello um i uh i it's funny you mentioned that about like sort of recommendation engines like ever i was about to say ever since i was a kid it's like okay i'm not that young the web isn't that old um <laughs> but like when the, when when recommendation engines started becoming like the thing like 20 years ago i guess now but um but I kept thinking to myself, wow, the web is this place we can go and find there's so many different, so much content from so many different diverse points of view. Um, it's this place we can go and find stuff that we never would have encountered any other way. Like it simply wouldn't have happened. And then the tools we use to navigate the web steer us in the opposite direction. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be great to have an anti-recommendation engine, which I could sort of, mm. it could get to know me but instead of taking that knowledge and showing me more of myself, it would say, okay, well, this is something, given who you are and what I know about you, you would never encounter. <laughs> like I'm deliberately gonna point you to something that there's no way you would run into it. Like that is like almost yeah. more of like what I want now.
1: That's, that's an amazing idea, <laughs> honestly. I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if you care about the business angle of it or whether there is one, but like that's a, that's a dope idea. If for nothing else, like, man i could see a lot of uh like ai researchers who would want to do something like that because the other thing you could do is to like you said like it can get to know you in the same way a recommendation engine could and you could have control over sort of like in which directions you'd like to step outside of your comfort zone yeah so like maybe there's a total randomizer like yeah you'll never come across this piece of music or this show or whatever but maybe it's also like a you know like you said you know we noticed that uh, a lot of your stories tend to have a white male protagonist like would you like to try some with a this type of protagonist or this type or like we've noticed you only watch english language movies maybe you want to try a different language so like giving you that stuff that's you know outside of your comfort zone but to your point also like within your realm of like interest and still giving Mm -hmm. you a little bit of control over, over how you do that exploring. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That one, man. It's funny you mention that because as I think about it, I'm like, I'm thinking like what kind of knobs and dials would I turn on that? And I'm like, oh, class. Like I just watched mm-hmm. um, Parasite, mm-hmm. which I'm going to recommend oh to all my, uh, my listeners Parasite so strongly. An incredible film. Right? Wow. Oh, my God. Best and, movie and, of the year, hands oh, down. Yeah, I, I've, I I doubt I'm going to see anything better. Um, I want to go but, see it again. I've been I know.
1: to see it again for a long time,
0: actually. Um, But, like, what really struck me, and this is something I noticed when looking back, so Parasite is directed by a guy named Bong Bong Joon-ho, and a lot of his movies really deal with class. I mean, Parasite more than any other, but they deal with class, and the protagonists are almost always poor. They're almost always struggling, and that's almost always relevant, like, that's part of what's driving the plot. Um, Even in a movie like The Host, which is, like, just a monster movie, it's told from the point of view of someone who's, of a family who's really struggling. Um, and like, I think, and I, and I started thinking about how many movies do I, of all the movies that I watched and all the movies that and, and all, just all the movies, how many of them have poor protagonists or protagonists who are below the poverty line or who are struggling and not that many, <laughs> right? no There's not a ton. Mm-hmm. And when I could think of ones that did, most of them were foreign, <laughs> which I found yeah. very curious. Right. <laughs> but uh-huh. yeah, I totally turned that class knob up to 11 and be like, okay, show me some like give me some action movies, but I want the, you know, protagonists to be struggling or whatever it is, you know?
1: Right. That's, you know, that's fascinating. I love that. And now I'm just thinking more about like, you're, you're a hundred percent right. And I was just sort of wondering, like, I think part of it is that the American movie industry is such a massive fucking like corporate engine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about, Talk about evil companies that are trying to manipulate you with uh subtle symbols uh <laughs> disney disney um anybody um but yeah i was just sort of thinking like hollywood industry in the u.s is very aspirational because it's like mm. you make money off of like painting a you know this p- beautiful picture of somebody who you could maybe be or like even if you can't be like you can suspend disbelief for an hour and a half and sort of pretend you're this person with this incredible life um even if you know they have whatever like love life drama issues that like make their million dollar home, you know, not as great or whatever, but, um, (laughs) but it's interesting. Like I think the, the movies here just tend to serve just a very different purpose. Whereas foreign films, I think are still, I don't know. I I think are are still a lot more true to the idea of like artistic expression and wanting to like make a point or make you feel some sort of way um, versus only making you want to feel really good kind of, which is what I think most, most American films these days are.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things I want to touch on before we we wrap up. So one is I want to revisit something you said before about the word "think" and the word "listen" being the same. Mm-hmm. In uh, which language was it?
1: Uh, the language is called Bambalang. It's uh, the native dialect that my dad's people speak in Cameroon. <laughs>
0: So I work at a company called Think Company and it's an experience design firm and we're very evidence-based. So when I translate that, it becomes Listen Company and it's just <laughs> blows my mind. Like, and I, I just want to thank you for that gift because pe- folks around here got no end of amusement out of that. So thank you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it blew my mind too. And you know, I, I couldn't help it immediately just be like, wow, like, how how would my you know approach and perspective on the world be different if i had never known those two concepts to be dip, like right. you know, separated from one another it's like no when you listen you think when you think you have to listen like what do you mean
0: yeah it's sort of like yeah. you're, i really need to think about this becomes i really need to listen about this i love that um and yeah. it it, and it turns mm-hmm. like the whole notion of intellectualism and uh, out of from from being this sort of solo like you know I don't know, like hero kind of like, you yep. know, really smart person the, the it, it kind of deconstructs the myth, the myth of the soul genius, right. Which is another big American mm-hmm. thing. It's like, and then says, cause in that, in that scenario would be the myth of the, you know, the soul listener, like that would be the thing you'd be elevating. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah, would be, you know, kind of an awesome thing to elevate. Um, the other, one of the well, other things I want to, oh, go society
1: ahead. Is so collect- I was just going to say in like, you know, African societies, tribal societies are so collectivist in the first place. Like mm. it kind of makes a lot of sense. It's like, how would you even think on your own? Like, what does mm. that even mean in a society where all responsibilities and stories and history and knowledge is shared, um, which I think is, a, is an interesting nuance, too?
0: Yeah. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this last time, I think, but that is one of the things that I've noticed in studying biases. Most of them are universal, but there's some where if there is going to be a difference, it's going to be in a collectivist society versus a... Um, a sort of individualistic when i have to imagine some of these linguistic biases you know because the language is being used differently it's influencing behavior or it's at least kind of running in in flow with the the culture mm-hmm. um the other thing i wanted to make sure we talk about which is to me one of my favorite language things ever is evidentiality um uh so do, so do you want to sort of unpack for us a bit because i think you mentioned it a little bit in your in your talk like what it, what it is and, um, you know, a little bit of the notion of like how you can pack how you know something into your speech. Um,
1: can you say that one more time? Oh, Sorry. sure, sure.
0: Sorry. So this is the um, you might not have called it evidentiality in your talk, but it's this notion that in your verb tense, some languages when they're saying Bob went to the store.
1: Mm, you can, yeah, yeah, You have no, to also gotcha.
0: include. yeah, 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 go ahead. Um,
1: yeah. So, so one of the examples that I came across during, uh, sort of my, my rabbit hole, um, exploration was this idea of assigning blame, Mm. um, which was interesting. Um, this is, these, these two are closely related, so I'll give two, but there was, uh, I think it was like speakers of Spanish and Japanese. Um, if it's an accidental event, they like, you don't, you don't identify the person who caused the accident. Um, so if somebody were to knock over a lamp accidentally, like you wouldn't say John accidentally broke the lamp. You'd just say like the lamp broke accidentally, Mm. um, which is really interesting. Um, but the other one that, uh, I sort of found even more interesting was this idea of verb tense being based on the source of your info. Mm -hmm. Um, let me see if I, I'm like going through my notes here. I got a ton of stuff, but, uh, Turkish. Yeah. So in Turkish, the verb tense that you use is partly predicated on whether you experienced or witnessed something firsthand, or whether you heard about it from somebody else. Mm. So you kind of have to ask yourself, "How did I come to know this?" When you're when you're conjugating a verb, um, obviously, if you're a native speaker, you don't actually ask yourself that question. But I thought that was really interesting, like especially in a world where um, you know, right now, I think truth is as muddy as it has ever been. Um, And I couldn't help but imagine, like, (laughs) what does American society look like if people have to communicate whether or not, like, this is something I actually know myself or "Mm, actually this is something that I basically got through hearsay, right? Yeah. Um, And I, I tend to think that you probably, you know, are less inclined to describe the things that you only know through hearsay or through the grapevine. Um, if they are, you know, so explicitly delineated from the things that you actually know, like just the act of using that other verb is sort of saying like, this is kind of gossipy slash I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overhyping this, but
0: um, no, I, 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 I did
1: talk to a Turkish guy at the end of the conversation who was like, yeah, that's exactly right. And I was like, thank God, because <laughs> like, fear was that somebody who spoke one of these other languages was going up to come up, up to me afterwards and be like, you're an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Okay, this is totally like just, you know, go to inside baseball or in this case, inside giving talks. Like I get yep. that too, because I'll do things where like I have a talk where I talk about how medium uses design to like influence the conversations people have in the comments to like make them more civil. Um, and this was like just conjecture on my part. I'm just making observations and blah, blah, blah. But then I finally met somebody who worked for Medium. And he's like, yep. Oh, and by the way, here's two other things we do. I'm like, oh, thank God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was so terrified. Yeah, he can't to me. He's like, hey, man, I'm from Turkey. And uh, like my heart skipped a couple of weeks. So i was like, hi. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the talk. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was really fascinating. Um, he was telling me actually about uh, some other... Oh, man, I don't want to... I don't want to Frankenstein it. Um, (laughs) He was basically telling me about like some other elements of Turkish language where there are like ideas of creativity are somewhat sanitized, like like even the act uh, or the idea of being a creative person or a creator, like the terminology there tends to be sort of tied to ideas of like frivolity. Um, And so he works at like a creative firm, but they're like, you know, struggling because to describe themselves as like the best creative people in Turkey is like almost to describe themselves as like the best fools. <laughs> uh, so on the one hand, he's like, okay, well, in the near term, what's a better way to communicate the value we bring? But sort of on the other side of things, they're actually trying to do kind of like a whole campaign around sort of resetting the, you know, the mental models around the ideas of like creativity and, and like, yeah, creative making. Um, that was really interesting.
0: That is, yeah. I just, I, but I, I do love going back to the, the evidentiality thing. I do love that. That's mm-hmm. what they call that, that mm-hmm. quality of language is evidentiality. Um, but I do love the notion of adding friction to hearsay, right? <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. yeah. you literally can't say Bob went to the store without saying how you know Bob went to the store. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love that those, those two things aren't aren't decoupled. So maybe a, give a design challenge out to uh to my listeners and and the world at large so um this is something i talk about uh uh and um when i'm talking about like design and bias and so we know that um if something is harder to read it's harder to believe and if it's easier to read it's easier to believe so I want people to go out and start playing with that in text. So if they're reporting like a news story and part of the news story is based on like hard facts that are confirmable, but then part of the story is more like conjecture. I want the conjecture to be in like a really difficult to read font, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like we can introduce evidentiality into English even if we don't, if we, even if we don't actually have it.
1: <laughs> hmm. I love that. That would be a fascinating, just like a, I could see a whole uh, like news organization or news and editorial organization being built up around like we've created a visual language for you to be able to quickly identify yeah like there could be even more there that might be interesting to people like uh you know editorial opinion versus you know firsthand like direct evidence versus uh, secondhand but through multiple sources so like as you consume any piece of information you're like oh this is this is the, you know, the, the author who's trying to interpret what's going on or this is a specific piece of fact. I actually uh, had an idea for making like a, an AI model that could basically help sort of be like a meta reader for people mm. and call out things like, hey, here's like a specific fact that they're claiming that's unsubstantiated with a source, for example, to kind of like really help you like <laughs> recognize shoddy journalism. Um, yeah. Because if you're not somebody who's in that world, you can consume articles that feel and sound journalistic, but that are actually, you know, just kind of crap. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I like that idea.
0: All right, one last thing. Then I'm going to let you go. Um, so I, I don't remember if I t- talked to you about this last time we chatted, but um, so so language. You know, we've talked, we've been talking about how language can influence behavior in ways that are you know subtle or not so subtle, and a lot of that really does come down to like this framing effect. Um, uh, the good news or an interesting news anyway, is that one of the weapons against the framing effect is in fact language. So one of the things I came across when I was studying the framing effect is that if you, um, are thinking about, uh, the, um, let's say it's, uh, someone's trying to frame like the immigration debate or if someone's trying to frame like the, the example I always give is you see a piece of beef and there's a sign that says beef 95% fat and another one that says beef 5% Mm -hmm. lean or sorry, sorry, 95% lean versus 5% fat. Like they're the same thing, but it seems like, you know, um, or if, it's impossible to discuss immigration without talking about the wall. So it turns out that if you um, think about the decision or think about the the issue in a language that's not your native language, in other words, if you're bilingual or trilingual, and you pick a language that is not your native language, you are much less likely to fall for the scam. Um, Hmm. And that just kind of amuses me because I know that like language, it's sort of like language can get us into trouble, but then language can also get us out of trouble.
1: Huh. No, I love that. I love that. There was a... There was a slide that again ended up getting cut from the talk. I really wish they would have just given me 20 minutes would have been so much better. Um, <laughs> but, uh, where, you know, towards the end of it, I was basically like, all right, well, I just hit you with you know, 12 minutes of why and how everybody's trying to manipulate you. Like, what do you, what do you do? Um, and I had a few sort of tips. My first was, you know, mind the input, which we've talked a lot about, like just be more thoughtful and, and careful about what you let in your brain. Uh, um, you know, identify and unpack your associations. So if there is something that sets you off, like every time you hear the word wall or quid pro quo, like you just get pissed and, you know, like angry, like stop and unpack that and be like, why is that? Mm -hmm. Um, And interrogate the frame, which we've talked about a lot. But the the slide that I left out says words are not reality, they're abstraction. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I kind of come back to when I'm, you know, in a a moment where I'm like struggling or kind of feel like I need a, a a reality check is, yeah, like, language is just abstraction. It is, it is a tool for trying to describe a reality that's always going to be way more complex than any words we could ever use to describe it. Mm. Um, and I think when you sort of fall back on that, it allows you to not get too caught up in sort of the specific, you know, linguistic framing of anything. And to say, like, even this framing, no matter how articulate or how on point, is still imperfect to a certain extent. Um, there was a quote from, I didn't write down who it's from, which is sad, but uh, the quote is, we're so reliant on abstraction that we will frequently use an incorrect model simply because we feel any model is preferable to no model. And I think <laughs> that too is just so on point, especially if you're somebody who's like very curious and needs answers. Yeah. There's nothing worse in the world and like such a hard thing to do to say like, I really don't know, actually. And I really yeah. don't understand this thing. And I don't think that's gonna happen today or this week. So rather than me assigning some explanation now, let me just accept that I don't fucking know. And like, I know as much as I know up to this point, and I still can't paint a picture. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a great sentiment to end on. Um, so Bimu, thank you very much for being on the show.
1: David, uh, super, super pleasure, man. It's not often, I think I told you this after our first conversation, but not often that you get to have uh, awesome conversations like this with awesome, smart people. Um, I've basically just completely zoned out of everything around me for the past 75 minutes, which means it
0: was was awesome. Awesome, feelings mutual. Uh, For the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dolan thomas and we will see you next time. Thanks.